Welcome to season seven of Franchise Findings. This is your host, Patrick Fundaro. We're gonna continue to interview franchisees of some very large franchise organizations as well as emerging concepts, as well as founders and top professionals in the franchising space. I hope you enjoy our podcast as well as today's episode. Hey, Patrick Fundaro here, co-founder at Visa Franchise Embedded Biz. Excited to have on the two Gordon brothers. Tyler and Zach, co-CEOs of Basecamp Franchising, major resale franchise group. Thanks so much, Tyler and Zach, for joining. No, thank you, Patrick, for uh, for having us on. Uh, first of all, we love your platform, and you've obviously had a, a really exceptional group of, of guests come along. So uh, we're excited to be able to share some of our story of Basecamp and then our two brands, Uptown Cheapskate and Kid to Kid. You two had a lot of optionality in terms of your career. Is it right both of you did undergrad Harvard and then MBA Harvard? Yeah, exactly. So we, we both um, we both followed a very uh, similar educational path. Um, and then I'd even say, as we started our careers, uh, continued that theme, uh, both working in various forms of finance and, and investing. And um, I'd say, as I look back, at least personally, uh, it was a great foundational experience. Uh, and I'd say Zach will probably feel similar about the companies he's worked with. To be able to learn from uh, such a diverse set of of management teams and and entrepreneurs over the course of our careers was a great foundational experience, um, and really ended up giving us the confidence then uh, to go off on our own and uh, and start working together. And why not just follow like continue to be like a professional investor? I'm sure both of you would have been MDs at a big private equity <laughs> fund and kind of less risk yeah. than going out and 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 buying a, a whole franchise business, not just becoming a franchisee? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, Zach and I, over the course of our careers, have, have spent a lot of time thinking about uh, where we did see our lives going and, and what we wanted to get out of uh, at least our professional endeavors. And uh, again, uh, loved everything about the experiences I had across the various companies I worked at before teaming up with Zach. But our decision ultimately uh, to work together came down to, I'd really say, two foundational uh, kind of reasons. Uh, the first one is just an inherent desire to work together. Um, Zach and I uh, get along really well, obviously, as brothers, um, but always had aspirations of, of teaming up uh, together. Since and when and, are we talking uh, about? Like high school? I'd say dating back all the way to college as we were Very thinking cool. about where our careers, uh, where they could uh, ultimately head. Um, it was this rolling kind of three to five years out on the horizon, uh, being able to team up and uh, eventually, ultimately just made the decision as we were getting a little bit older, getting a little more gray hair. Now or never. If, uh, <laughs> well, hopefully the camera's hiding it, but, uh, <laughs> but, but no, um, ultimately just made the decision that it was the right time in our careers uh, to work together. Uh, so one was just that, that fundamental dynamic. Uh, and then the second one is really an orientation around wanting to build something over a long-term horizon and really have our, our fingerprint and DNA uh, in a company that we would ultimately uh, hopefully help support uh, longer term. In that regard, while we both love deal making, actually ended up uh, operating a company, and in this case, uh, finding Basecamp, a lot of an ability not just to uh, to really build a company, uh, but also a team around us. And, and the benefit of the franchise model is, is honestly then from there, even a community of entrepreneurs across the country. And from a fulfillment standpoint, uh, at least for me, and I know Zach would say the same thing, uh, as I look back at the end of my career, uh, this is definitely uh, where I much prefer to be oriented. From what I understand, your your investment's a little different than 
other investments in the franchise space where the hold could be three years, five years, six years. Could you tell tell me a little bit about uh, your, your guys' strategy? Yeah, uh, look, I would say that we have an indefinite time horizon. Um, and frankly, uh, this is something that we talked about over the years, Tyler and I, as we worked in uh, different firms with different investment strategies, we felt that really there was a, a limitation that investors were putting on themselves by having what ultimately was a short-term orientation. And it could be a couple of months, it could be a couple of years, right? So even private equity firms, if you're going to hold for five or seven years, that still is a reasonably short period of time to be managing, and especially managing a company and especially managing change. So uh, from that sort of strategic perspective, but then also just in terms of the fulfillment that Tyler was mentioning earlier for us, approaching something with kind of an indefinite time horizon really makes a huge difference. And in uh, an industry like franchising, that's especially important. Why? Because we're signing up with franchisees who at a minimum uh, are excited to work with us for, for 10 years. So that's the initial term of the franchise agreement. And nobody's getting into this, right, to just uh, hop in and hop out. Uh, ideally, I think people would have this be, you know, sort of the duration of their careers, maybe even build something that they can pass down to different members of their family. And so that's as close, I think, to a permanent kind of mindset or time horizon as, as I've seen uh, out there in, in business. And so to have that same uh, sort of point of focus as the franchisor, I think is critical. And it's it's rarer than, than you might think, uh, just based on my own experience in, in franchising. Uh, and that disconnect between what is often a shorter term orientation at the level of the franchisor and a very long term orientation at the level of the franchisee is cause for certainly confusion, if not if not some frustration. And so franchising just ended up being a, a really great fit. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like franchise systems that have over 100 units and like the majority investors the same after like a five year period or seven year period, like there's not there's not so many like the smaller unit count. Like, yeah, sure. 20 units, 30 units. I interviewed a franchisor that's been a franchisor, uh, you know, for 30 plus years at that unit level, but not at the scale that, that you guys are at, 200 units growing um, and, and scaling up. So I imagine that resonates a yeah. lot with current franchisees, but also potential franchisees knowing they're signing a contract, yes, with Basecamp Franchising, but ultimately the Gordon brothers' reputations on the line and their, their career, their professional vocation is intricately tied to this. Yeah, and I would say that ended up being a really important component of the partnership we created with the founders of Basecamp, so the, the Sloan family, uh, who have been just absolutely incredible um, as we've gotten to know them over the past, let's call it year and a half and, and close to a year, uh, really as, as co-managers of the business. Uh, for them, um, it was important about not just finding a partner that had a shared sense of values um, that they could rely on, but also did have that long-term orientation. Uh, I'd say that both we and them have very aspirational goals uh, about uh, where we can take our two brands, um, all centered on fundamental franchisee success. Uh, and in order to, to accomplish those goals, you need to maintain that long-term orientation. So it was really important to them. It was really important to us. And uh, as Zach pointed out, we do think it's a real differentiator versus what you might see across the broader franchise landscape. So as I'm sure you you get a lot, especially from probably Zach's like former colleagues at Restaurant Brands International, like clothing resale, franchising, like usually those two words don't go together. Could you dumb it down for me? Like what the clothing resale market's all about in industry? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's 
not an industry that I knew a tremendous amount about as recently as three or four years ago. And it's funny because one of my main jobs at RBI was to look at uh, other concepts that, that RBI might partner with or acquire. So I've looked at just about every restaurant concept under the sun, at least in, in the US or in North America. Um, and so I know my way around an FDD. I know how to evaluate a franchise. And uh, even having spent a lot of time in sort of the franchising landscape, I, I had never really heard of, of clothing resale as, as a sort of an industry or a subsector within apparel. So even just how did we how did we come across Kid to Kid in, in Uptown Cheapskate to begin with? Uh, we started by doing a landscaping exercise. And so I obviously am very familiar with the restaurant space and restaurants represent give or take, let's say half of the pie uh, when you think about franchising. Uh, and then there are a couple of other categories that represent uh, call it 25% plus of uh, of the remainder of, of the pie. Uh, those would be gyms, wellness, home services. And so uh, Tyler and I thought, well, there's this tale, right, of kind of all other. Um, I wonder what's what's in there. Uh, and so I spent, uh, spent some time investigating any number of different sort of flavors of franchises. Um, I had recently actually had my first child with my wife. So front of mind was how much inventory we were burning through uh, as our daughter was sizing up every 10 seconds. Um, and kind of at that moment, I, I come across Kid to Kid, so one of our two brands, and I'm like, wow, this is an awesome idea. I'd love to learn more. And so uh, I did so. I, I opened up the FDD for Kid to Kid. Oh, Uptown Cheapskate, the sister brand. Let's check out Uptown as well. And, and kind of couldn't believe what I what I was seeing. So we have a very detailed item 19. Turns out that you can you can do very well uh, in clothing resale, at least uh, as is reflected in the performance of of Uptown and Kid to Kid franchisees. So uh, that was just the start of what turned into this uh, you know several week period of kind of diving headfirst into the resale industry. And just the more I learned, and I can't say that this is something I've uh, encountered many times in my career, but the more I learned about the space. Uh, and consumers, you know, catching on to the fact that, wow, there's really great value here in resale. It's sustainable. Uh, this actually aligns with my personal values. Um, the unit economics, again, that if you have this professionalized approach to resale, uh, which is different from, I'd say, a traditional approach, which we can get into later. Wow. The more I learn, the more I, I like this. And, and frankly, the more I love this. Uh, and so, didn't know much about resale. Uh, we can get into, I guess, the particularities about what differentiates Uptown and Kid to Kid versus uh, the, the other players out there and the independent operators. But um, it's been an incredible, I would say, educational journey learning more about this space that, that's already huge and that consumers are, are catching uh, more and more onto. How do the unit level economics compare from, say, a quick service restaurant, a food franchise to Kid to Kid or Uptown Cheapsteak? So there are two dimensions to really simplify it to unit economics. There's the upfront investment, and then there's the uh, the cash flow uh, at steady state that you can pull out of the business. Uh, I'd say taking them in sequence first, uh, the upfront costs for an uptown cheapskate or a kid to get, they're comparable. Uh, and so this is all on our FDD and, and there's a range depending on your market and the size of your store. But uh, let's say that in the middle, it's somewhere around half a million dollars. Um, that's a relevant amount of money, right? So that's definitely in sort of the upper tier, I would say of franchises writ large, if you compare it to a home services concept that might have really just the franchise fee as the startup cost. But relative to restaurants, it's significantly lower. Uh, than, than most of the concepts that you'd see out there where you might spend two million bucks opening up, you know, a brand new restaurant with the drive through and all of that. So it's a lot of money, but it's not uh, it's not quite at the level of a lot of the big restaurant concepts. And then in terms of the second uh, side of that equation, so uh, cash flow, 
I mean, at Uptown Cheapskate, um, on average, our uh, our stores are generating in excess of $200,000 a year in, in EBITDA, um, which compares very favorably to just about any uh, scaled restaurant concept, at least that I've So 500K I've down, at. you're making 200K a year. I mean, there's a lot of restaurant concepts where it's like 1.3 investment and you make 150 or you make like 200. Yeah. And, and, and that's what we think is a really important dimension. At the end of the day, we measure success based on our franchisee success yeah. because everything else fundamentally flows from there. If you get that part of the equation right, you're going to continue to grow. Your franchisees are going to be happy. They're going to recruit other people into your system. And so uh, everything that we do is squarely focused on driving that profitability. And uh, our hope and expectation is uh, that profile that we already think is, is some of the best you'll see in franchising will only continue to get better over time. And as you think about that, I mean, what what is going to drive uh, the future profitability uh, of our stores? Uh, so one, you have uh, just remarkable industry tailwinds in resale that Zach referenced earlier. That presents a very attractive baseline. And then when you layer on top, what is a at, at minimum uncertain macroeconomic environment uh, that we live in today, uh, what you, you see, at least historically looking, is that our concepts not only do well, but but honestly thrive uh, when there is macroeconomic uh, turmoil. Uh, and so we feel that for our franchisees in our system and, and the ones that, that will be joining us, uh, hopefully the return profile in, in any environment uh, should be really attractive. And I met a few of your franchisees, and I think one of them was like, operating a couple uh, franchises in like rural Pennsylvania and doing really well. You know, a lot of the franchise concepts outside of food, like preschools, you got to be in a, a core market, urban, suburban. It doesn't really make sense to be in a rural area. Could you tell me a little bit about where a kid to kid can operate uptown cheapskate? Yeah, I would say that you, you, as a starting point, you need a certain amount of population uh, density around let's call it the service area of the store and that can vary if you're in a more urban or suburban environment um, the service radius is is tighter if you're in a more rural environment it can be much much uh, wider right just by virtue of the fact that the people living in that rural environment will generally speaking have many fewer options uh, and so they're willing to and in fact in a lot of cases have to drive farther in order to you know even go to the supermarket or, or buy clothes in our case so as long as you have a, a certain base load of population let's say that uh, will reliably be driving uh, you know to the shopping center or at least by the shopping center where you're located uh, from there i'd say it's really especially when we're opening up a new market uh, about customer education so inviting people into the store showing them what a professional thrift shop looks like which is very very different from i think most people's conception of what a you know thrift shop is um, showing them showing them what we have to offer which fundamentally is a very broad assortment call it 15,000 items at any given time to choose from um, that turns very quickly such that if they came in one day and they came in the next month they'd see a, a lot of new products hanging what would you say uh, at, like any like percentage sorry? Like week to week or month to month like what the turnover looks like um, I would say that it, it varies by store, but I would say that a, a good target or a good benchmark would be for at least 25% of the inventory to be refreshed from one month to the so next. So you have like 300, 400 pieces like you're moving. Huge amount. So in fact, you know, getting back even to one of your earlier questions, which is what differentiates you uh, versus 
uh, kind of resale players out there in general. Um, and I'd say that the reality of resale is that it's an industry with a tremendous amount of complexity. Just consider, uh, you know, the, the exercise of deciding what you're going to buy, what you're going to buy it for, what then you're going to price it at when you put it out on your floor, how you're going to keep track of when you bought a particular item such that if you're holding on to it for too long, you know, you got to mark it down and get it out of your store. How do you keep track of all of that, right? It's, it's very, very difficult. And so there's this intersecting, uh, these intersecting sources of complexity that you have to deal with um, that in general, and I'm sure you've been to a thrift shop <laughs> at some point in your life, uh, you walk in and you don't see people knocking it out of the park, I would say in general, as it relates to managing all of that complexity, uh, be it because all the inventory is you know, not particularly interesting, maybe it's kind of dirty, maybe it even kind of smells, right? That, <laughs> I think a lot of people have that connotation. Uh, it doesn't move uh, and it's not compelling. And there's no incentive for you to come back the next month because if you did, you'd see all the same stuff. It wasn't um, like a so great from a con consumer experience too. It's a very lackluster consumer experience. And, you know, for the person then operating the store, most of these independent thrift shops and they're over 10,000 thrift shops in the US, so way more than, than I would have anticipated ex ante. For most of them, they're owner operators. So, you know, they're doing most of the buying, they're doing the pricing. So to the extent that they're good at it, it's basically by definition, not scalable because it's only them. Who's you bought a job. Of... So someone maybe making a hundred K they're happy. They're, they're doing everything exactly. themselves. So, you know, nobody is really, uh, nobody's really winning. I would say in, in that, in that paradigm, um, when you shift to our stores, you asked about technology, um, Really, our stores, our systems, and technology is a big part of this. Our systems are all about addressing head-on those sources of complexity and subjectivity. Um, and so there are plenty of different systems that exist outside of our technology, but really the spinal cord is a, a proprietary technology suite that I have to just tip my hat to the Sloans for investing in, uh, going back to the 1990s, uh, that combines a point of sale, so a proprietary point of sale system, which that is a serious undertaking, um, but it's, in our view, uh, objectively the, the best point of sale system on offer in, in the resale industry. Uh, it's a product appraisal system. So for people coming in and are offering their clothes for you to buy as a franchisee, this system, as you input attributes, what's the brand, what type of item is it? Is it a pair of jeans or a scarf, uh, whatever uh, type of item it is, six attributes in total. As you're putting in those attributes, ultimately, the program is spitting out a suggest uh, a list of or a range, I should say, uh, of suggested prices uh, that you can have confidence. Okay, I'm going to offer this for this garment, right? Instead of just going like this, right, uh, and open for the best. Uh, and then an inventory management system is kind of the third uh, uh, leg of the stool that allows you to keep track of every single item that you've purchased, how long it's been in your inventory, and again, to the extent that it's not moving. The market has told you they don't like that item at that price. You need to mark it down so that you get it out of your store. And I imagine there's kind of a competitive moat, like all the data you've accumulated over the last 20 plus years, some software company could try to sell to these independent thrift stores, but they wouldn't have the data to tell the software what to do with that pretty complex process. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the technology component of it is certainly one critical area. And we, we now have millions of data points yeah. over three decades <laughs> Uh, worth of experience now across close to 250 stores, uh, all of whom are experimenting and learning every single day. And, and what we're able to do centrally at Basecamp is harness that data to understand what our best practice is and then distribute those 
across our system. Uh, and so there's a, there's a data component of it, uh, which is critically important in an area where, as Zach referenced, we're continuing to make really meaningful investments at Basecamp. We already think we have the best technology suite out there, um, but we have very broad uh, aspirations about where it could head uh, in the future. So one is the technology and, and data component of it. I think the other component that goes hand in hand with it uh, and really amplifies uh, the benefit of these shared learnings is our community of franchisees. Uh, if you look at what fundamentally has driven our growth, uh, it's our franchisees. Uh, we have a, a really exceptional group of individuals and teams across the country who are not only uh, really strong operators and owners of their own businesses, but extremely supportive and collaborative with other franchisees. Uh, and so as they are experimenting, as they are learning, uh, they're proactively looking for ways to help other franchisees, either in local markets or across the country, succeed. And just one anecdotal story around that is uh, we have had, even just since Zach and I took over the business nine months or so ago, have had numerous examples of franchisees, existing franchisees and their managers fly to another franchisee's grand opening on their own dime to help that franchisee get out of the gates with momentum. Wow. Uh, and I would imagine a lot of uh, larger uh, franchise systems, uh, one of which Zach may have worked at in the past, you might not even see franchisees attending their own grand opening, uh, <laughs> let alone somebody else's uh, to help them succeed. Yeah, I've heard, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of franchisors with my team over a thousand franchisees. And I have one client in real estate property management. He got his first client from a franchisee in an adjacent territory. That's like on the same level for what you guys are saying in terms of like the collaboration between franchisees. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really great. And um, the way we like to think about it is if you're joining our system, it just means you're never alone in your business. Um, and we had a, another franchisee uh, who unfortunately in, in January passed away uh, very, very unexpectedly. Uh, and uh, he was the main operator for that store. Uh, since then, his wife and the store manager have really stepped up. But we had, again, several franchisees, existing and former franchisees, come in to help that store through that difficult period. It was most recently our store of the month across our entire system uh, in March. It's had a spectacular year overall, and it's a testament not just to, again, that local team, but our entire community stepping in to really help that uh, that family through a, through a difficult time. It's probably like easier to foster a community when you're doing good, like it's sustainability. And I'm sure that's top of mind. Yeah, you can make money, but at the end of the day, it's you're running a very sustainable operation. Then like getting a, you know, getting um, a community together for a franchise that just sells like sweets or, or some good that's not a net positive for, for society. Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting about our industry is that it combines sustainability, uh, which is a, you know, worthwhile pursuit in and of itself with value. And this is a combination that you rarely see. Uh, sustainable, you know, uh, consumer products or services often are premium services and products, right? And in our case, we're delivering deep value to everybody who's coming into our stores. So for the people who are bringing in their items to sell to us, they're doing so because we represent a convenient and overall really good option to turn their you know, increasingly obsolete inventory. I'm thinking about myself, right? Going back to what I was saying about my now two daughters, just an unbelievable amount of inventory, uh, turning that into cash 
Uh, and actually a good number of them, you can also opt to, uh, to turn those uh, older items into store credit and you get 25% more value if you mm -hmm. do that. So you can get the next size up, right? It's, it's, it's a very intuitive process, I would say, uh, on the kid side as much as on the, the young adult side. So the people who are bringing in their, their items to sell to us, uh, they're doing so because they're getting you know, compelling value and they're ending up with cash in their pocket. On the other side of the transaction, the people who are coming into our stores and buying from us are only doing so because they're getting really good prices. Right At the end of the day, we are selling used clothing uh, and you know, other items, gently used, uh, but clearly people are only gonna come into our, our stores if they're getting really good value. And for the brands that people are walking out the door with, they're getting the best prices on the market. So on both sides of the transaction, people are getting a lot of value from a consumer perspective. Then in the middle, you have our franchisees who are also generating a lot of value, right, for, for themselves as, as business owners. Uh, and that's true at the level of one store. And then we have, at this point, several dozen franchisees who own multiple locations. And then you layer on top the fact that, you know, every garment that ends up in our stores and then is purchased by somebody else uh, is one fewer new garments, right, that has to be sold, one fewer garments that ends up uh, in the garbage uh, sooner than it, than it needs to. So there's, there's kind of value all around in addition to the sustainability. Yeah, that's an interesting point because like the folks that are, are interested and in they really respect sustainability, they tend to also be the people that maybe eat organic, but if you have an organic cafe, that's not so sustainable. Like, the crop yields aren't as good. It's not as good for the environment or like the guy that, you know, electric vehicles. Like, there's a lot of industries that like on one side, it's good, but maybe for certain aspects of the environment or human health. But the other end, there's like a huge like negative aspect to it. Yeah. And, and in this case, it truly is all excess value. These are articles of clothing or other assortment of goods uh, that are already in circulation. And to Zach's point, otherwise could have ended up in a landfill. Uh, and we're creating a much more sustainable environment for everybody to benefit from uh, while simultaneously driving real and objectively strong value to the consumer on both sides of the equation and the franchisee sitting in the middle. What should consumers do with like excess clothes? Like I, say it is kids clothes and, and I don't know if you guys have one in the Miami area, but obviously that would be one option. But what do I, what does someone do? What does a consumer do with their gently used clothes? There aren't a lot of uh, great options, honestly. And by the way, we do have one store in the Fort Lauderdale area um, with a phenomenal franchisee nil who's gonna be opening a store in Miami Beach uh, soon. She just signed her franchise agreement. So, so get I ready. I was thinking about uh, you guys. Like, board. there's nothing like this yeah. in Miami Beach. Population of like ninety thousand. I don't know the tour. The there's got to be over a million tourists that visit. So yeah. So so look, your options are are really to throw them away, which is actually what a lot of people end up doing because maybe they have nobler intentions. Oh, I'm going to donate this, or I'm going to um, you know give it to a friend of mine who needs it, or something like that. But it ends up just sitting in the closet until you move houses or apartments and then lo and behold it ends up in in the garbage so um i guess even before the option of throw it in the garbage is do nothing with it which is what a lot of people do right they just sort of sit right. on the inventory because they don't know what to do uh, next best option i guess would be throw it away um next best option might be give it away right so give it to somebody in your family especially if this is children's clothing if you know somebody who just had a kid you know a baby boy and your boy is two years old you've got plenty of inventory that you might be able to give them uh, and so that's a good option and of course that's one that that a lot of people take advantage of uh, you can donate it 
to charities, right? So to a local church or um, to any number of different charities. And that's a fantastic option as well. Um, when you trace where those clothes end up, frankly, in any of these channels, a lot of them end up in, in the garbage anyway. Um, and they just have a few more stops along the way before they get there. Other options, you know, there are e-commerce oriented options. So ThreadUp would be, you know, a, a company that has uh, tried to represent a really kind of convenient option for people. You just throw your stuff into a bag and you send it to us. Uh, and so that's one that, that some people uh, have taken advantage of. Uh, I'd say questionable the value proposition in terms of what you end up getting back. <laughs> you don't get much in the way of cash. And if you do, it's probably six months down the line. And so that's at least better to, to throwing it out, but, but you don't end up getting a lot of value, uh, generally speaking, as the consumer. Um, you can take it to Goodwill, similar, and so you'd be able to write it off for tax purposes. So you get some, uh, you get some value that way. Um, but then on the other end of Goodwill, it's a very haphazard, I would I've even say that. chaotic consumer experience. So consumers don't go there looking for, you know, really good high quality inventory. And by virtue of that, a lot of the stuff at Goodwill, again, ends up not even being sold in the Goodwill. So, okay, if those are kind of, the, that's the suite of options available to people who, who live in, let's say, an urban environment, then you compare it to our value proposition, right? Where you can come in, you can come in with six trash bags, bring as much as you want. We'll sort through it. We'll take out uh, what uh, we can reliably kind of say has has value, has residual value. We'll pay you cash for it on the spot. You can walk out the door with that cash. You can keep the store credit and buy other stuff in the store. And for the remainder, uh, for most of our stores, the stuff that we don't accept, we're happy to donate it for you. And we'll provide you with a uh, with a tax slip there provided by the, the charity that we partner with in that local market so that you can take a write off on the stuff that we didn't buy. So it sounds like my plan will be wait for the Miami Beach location to open. And if it wasn't, I would just go once a year, go to Fort Lauderdale and drop, drop off a couple of trash bags and get something, buy something yeah. in the store. And your point around uh, the Miami market, and you could make this uh, the same argument if you look at the broader Florida market as well, and countless other states across the U.S., uh, the reality is, to Zach's point before, uh, while the, the thrift ecosystem is very large today, um, so there's 10,000 plus or minus thrift stores across the U.S., resale in the U.S. is a $40 billion market already. Uh, the reality is kind of the professionalized resale is still really in its infancy. And so if you look at the available markets that exist across the U.S., even in our markets and states that are more heavily populated, there are still decades of runway uh, for our concepts to expand. And so for us at the franchisor level, but then in particular for our franchisees who are entering our system, a lot of them really care about, okay, well, once I've gotten this first store underneath, uh, underneath my control and I feel really good about the foundation I built, what then? Uh, and it's great to be able to offer them that opportunity to expand if that's of interest to them. Uh, and if not, and if their heart desires to only just have one great store in a community. If you're fine just that, making 200K in a well. small town, that's a, that's a nice limit. <laughs> <living. laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I understand you have one franchisee that's like up to 20 locations across the two brands. Yeah, so uh, we've got a few dozen multi-unit operators uh, already, uh, and that number is expanding um, by the minute. Uh, our biggest operator today has just under uh, 19 or just under 20 stores um, and is about to open their 20th. So, so we'll cross that threshold uh, any, any month now. Um, 
But uh, again, uh, what we've seen, at least across our system, is those franchisees who have a desire to expand um, and now have expanded are all really successful. Uh, and it, it's really great to see them uh, continue to build the enterprise value uh, around their stores. But yeah, uh, currently 20 stores is, or, or just under it, is, is the high watermark. Um, but we certainly would expect to see, just based on the interest across our system today, uh, people to continue to push up uh, that threshold. We unpacked a lot today, and I want to be mindful of both your, your times. Any pending thoughts for prospective franchisees, um, things that they should be considering, or, or maybe something that really that you haven't mentioned yet so far about the two brands? Yeah, I would say just one high-level comment, and anybody who's thinking about uh, joining any franchise system, this is advice I would give them, is to really fundamentally understand the nature of the relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee. Uh, and as Zach alluded to earlier, oftentimes, if not most of the time, you'll see an inherent conflict really driven around uh, a different time horizon yeah. uh, that they're investing around. And, and for us, and fundamentally, the only thing we care about is our franchisee success. And that's uh, that, that, that's really driven by the fact that we do have this perpetually long time horizon uh, that, that we're building around. Um, and so what does that mean for what a franchisee could expect? Uh, it's really a tireless dedication uh, to improvement. Uh, and we're making very long-term investments in our technology, in our support teams, in our marketing efforts, our bookkeeping services, everywhere across our organization, really to make sure that what is a great foundation today only continues to get better. And our, again, hope and expectation uh, is that moat that you had referenced uh, earlier, Patrick, uh, is one that continues to expand uh, over time. And the last thing maybe I'll, I'll reference is uh, we take a real responsibility around nurturing the right community orientation around our stores. Uh, and so we take the decision of who to welcome into our franchise system extremely seriously. Uh, and we would much prefer to grow slower with the right people and give every one of our existing franchisees the opportunity to expand uh, than trying to just put dots on the map. I mean, maybe I would just underscore something that you brought up, Patrick, which is uh, the impact um, and the really positive impact and multifaceted positive impact that uh, that our business has um, in general. So, you know, even on the environment, uh, you could say, but then definitely in the, the communities that, that we serve where we have stores, um, you know, as Tyler mentioned, uh, he and I are kind of compulsive, uh, hard workers. So, you know, working tirelessly is probably something we would do, um, kind of anyway, but I got to say getting out of bed in the morning, uh, considering that our growth really does, uh, have these positive externalities such yeah. that as we grow, those positive externalities grow, it, it makes a, it makes a big difference. And I've worked in a variety of different industries, including fast food. Uh, and I can say it, it makes, it makes a difference. Um, and you see it, you see it in the types of people who are attracted to the industry as well, just really community oriented, supportive and fundamentally constructive people who really want to maximize the positive externality in addition to just the success of, of the system. Tyler, Zach, what's the best way if someone's interested in exploring either of the brands to, to reach out, to connect? Yeah, so thanks for, uh, thanks for asking, Patrick. Um, there are a number of different ways that uh, we'd be excited to hear from people interested in our concepts. Uh, probably the most relevant is getting in touch with us through our franchise development websites uh, for both Kid to Kid and Uptown Cheapskate. Uh, we have a pretty exhaustive set of information 
uh, on those websites about both our brands, our community, and what you can expect as a franchisee. We'd also certainly encourage people as they're interested uh, to follow us, whether that be on Instagram and Facebook or checking us out on LinkedIn. Uh, we certainly would be excited to, to hear from you and, uh, and see if there's a mutual fit. And I'd say don't be shy. Tyler and I are very hands-on, so you can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to reach out to us directly. That's actually a real feature of this job, I'd say, is that it's very interpersonal. We get to meet people from all over the country who are interested in uh, fundamentally things that we're also interested in. So uh, please feel free to reach out that way as well. Perfect. We'll be, be sure to include those in the call notes. It was great to have on. I thought my brother and I were the only franchise brothers. It's good to have uh, two more uh, two more franchise brothers on the show. And really look forward to following your, your guys' success over the years to come. Thank you, Patrick. And again, we're incredibly appreciative of your having us on here. Uh, love the platform and, and glad, glad we get to be a part of the story. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. You can leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast episode. If you hated the podcast episode, let us know what you thought as well as what future episodes you'd like to hear. Feel free to also drop me a line at patrick at vettedbiz.com and subscribe please to our YouTube channel, Business and Franchise Opportunities by Vetted Biz. This has been Franchise Findings Podcast. Thanks for listening.